Good evening. I invite you to take your Bibles. We're going to open up to Matthew chapter 5, continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount, delivered by Christ early on in his ministry. As you turn there, let's pause for prayer and ask for God's grace on our time this evening, and then we'll jump right into verse 5. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for freedom to gather, freedom to come and worship together. I pray for those who are not able to gather with us this evening. I pray for those who are physically unwell, who are enduring uh, difficulties right now, that you would comfort them by your grace. And for those of us here, uh, that we would uh, be hearers of the word, and that through your, your truth, we would then have the opportunity to be doers by your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 5. Let me paint a picture for you. There are two men who face each other on a street in front of the governor's palace. One was Jesus, the meekest man who ever lived. The other was Pontius Pilate, a man of astonishing pride. Jesus appeared as the epitome of weakness, a poor Jew caught on the wrong side of the Roman Empire and Roman history, frail, impotent, a man who was destined to be annihilated from the earth. On the other hand, Pilate. Pilate, who's the embodiment of Roman power. And the tides of history are with this governor. And as part of Rome, he was heir to the whole earth. These two figures are on opposite ends of a tragic paradox. Jesus Christ, the prisoner, was the free man. He was in absolute control. Jesus, the meek, would inherit not only the earth, but the universe. On the other hand, Pilate, the governor, was the prisoner of his own pride. He would not even have control over his own soul He frankly had no inheritance at all. And we know that from the teachings of Christ, we know that he was pretty much the master of the paradox, right? The master of what we would call, that doesn't make sense, theological. His teachings are littered with incredible contrasts like this. He says, the like, excuse me, the last will be first. Giving is receiving, dying is living, losing is finding, least is greatest, poor is rich, weakness is strength, serving is ruling. Because for Christ, paradoxes were an especially effective way of getting people to see a central truth. And in this instance, in verse 5, he presents us with a pretty incredible paradox. He says this, blessed, blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. I think it's going to become apparent to you as we walk through this, but I think familiarity for us kind of breeds a sense of uh, perhaps it doesn't strike us as much. But I'd like you to, as we walk through this, try to place yourself in the audience of Christ that day. Your context, your very recent history, your expectations and you hear these words from Jesus, and it doesn't make any sense at all. 
Because I don't know about you, but this proclamation here, it grabs my attention. It's fairly illogical, and it really doesn't seem to fit well even with our current culture and society today. Not at all, in fact. In fact, it seems far truer to say, blessed are the proud. Blessed are the intimidating. Blessed are the self-serving, for they will inherit the earth. Doesn't it seem like that sometimes? Doesn't it seem like the ones who are self-promoting are the ones who are actually achieving something? Gaining, inheriting something? But Jesus is teaching that somehow the meek inherit everything. Really? Life simply doesn't work that way, right? But this beatitude disregards the laws of nature and of society. Just look, okay? Examine in your day-to-day life and as you see life happening around you, who are the people who are rising to the top of every successful business? Who are the people in the corner offices? Who's made it in life? It's the strong. It's the self-sufficient, the overbearing, the capable, the aggressive, the ambitious. These are the people that the world belongs to. These are the people who've made it. And frankly, the last thing the average man wants to be known for is meekness. I, I dare say that if you got called in for an interview for your dream job, and your interviewer said, hey, tell me your strengths. You're going to do your very best to give every single one of the qualities that puts you out in front, shows that you have some kind of step ahead of whoever else is interviewing. You're probably not going to look at this guy or this lady and say, I'm a pretty meek person. They probably would say, thanks for coming in. We'll see you later, right? Why? Because our world misinterprets meekness for many things, and we'll talk about it in just a minute. And perhaps in your minds, like in the minds of those who were in the audience of Christ that day, Jesus has made a great mistake by saying this. This makes no sense, but of course we know he's not made a mistake. His words are intentional because this beatitude actually provides a trustworthy law of life, a remarkable power for living and dying. It is the way that Christ prescribes for kingdom citizens. This is the character that he gives to his his children. Uh, God gives to his children. But for the average person, okay, this is an absurdity. It is. The particular description of genuine Christian character causes real surprise because it's so completely opposite and opposed to every way of the, that the natural man thinks. Read it, read it again. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We're talking about world conquest, possession of the whole universe, given back to meek people. Of all people, meek. But rather, our world thinks in terms of strength of power, of ability, self-assurance, ambition, insistence. This is the idea the world presents of conquest and possession. The more you assert yourself, the more you express yourself, the more you organize and display your powers and abilities, the more you're likely to succeed and rise to the top. 
But here comes this astounding, astonishing statement by Jesus. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. They're the ones who inherit everything, Jesus says. Which should frankly give us um, an incredible reminder here that the believer is totally different from the natural ways of this world. We spiritually live on a different wavelength than how the rest of our world thinks. And again, don't let familiarity numb your, 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 your thoughts here of what Jesus is saying. This statement has to have come as an extreme shock to the system of both the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, the average person listening on that day. Why? Because like us, they had pretty significant set-in-stone expectations and presumptions about the coming Messiah. They had their whole lives had an expectation, a certain meter dream of what was going to happen one day. Have you ever had an expectation of yours that you set just get absolutely crushed or demolished? Have you? For me, uh, it happens fairly often, unfortunately, but have you ever had, have you ever planned like a long time? You planned, you saved, you got every single detail laid out down to the, to the minute, to the, to the penny, and then you actually experienced this and it did not live up to your expectation. You ever done that before? Right? Has someone ever told you, oh, you're going to love this, I don't know, restaurant or meal, right? My grandma's cooking or this is just incredible. And you get in there and your expectation is being built up and you're so excited and you take that first bite and you go, I totally regret this, right? You go and you convince your family, we're going to go on a camping trip because that's what all the cool people do, right? So you get a tent and you get all these things and you go out into the middle of nowhere and you set up this tent and it begins to pour rain and you look at each other and you say, we regret this, right? This is not what they advertise on TV as just beautiful camping where nothing comes and bothers you, right? And, and, and where it's totally sunny and perfect weather. No, we've all had moments and instances and expectations where we, we dream, we set our minds and our hearts on it, and it's just not met. It doesn't live up to our expectation. And for the people that Jesus is talking to, Remember, put yourself in their shoes. They have waited hundreds of years for saving. These people have been under oppression for now about a hundred years under the Roman Empire, complete seizing of who they are. And yet under all this oppression and desire for freedom, their expectation is still the same because they firmly believe that the Messiah was coming soon and that he would deal gently with them and harshly with their oppressors. That's what they had been promised. That they had, they had an expectation that was materialistic and militaristic in its deliverance. They were thinking in terms of conquest and fighting in a material sense. And you know what Jesus does? He immediately says, no. 
that's not at all what my kingdom's about. He dismisses it. It's as if he's saying, no, 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 that's not the way. I'm not like that. And my kingdom is not like that. He says, blessed are the meek. Again, the Jews are, are receiving these words and they are having just a crumbling of their expectations. It's a huge blow to their mindset. And furthermore, not only are they going to not be delivered, the very idea, and I don't think they anticipated this at all, that their Messiah, their deliverer, he would not come with a sword in hand and shield in another and rage to come to destroy. Their Messiah, they're caught off guard. This man is saying he, he's not coming to do that. He's actually coming in humility and in meekness. The idea of the Messiah leading meek people was so far away from their concepts of the Messianic kingdom. The Jews understood military power. That's what they were under. Roman rule. The power of political authority. They did not understand the power of meekness. John MacArthur summarizes it well from helping us understand the Jewish perspective. He says, to the Jews, the gospel is a stumbling block because the idea of the Messiah, the Messiah, their Savior, the idea of him dying at all, much less on a cross, was unthinkable. How could a Messiah who taught for just a few short years, accomplished absolutely nothing as far as the eye could see, and then was rejected by religious leaders and put to death, how could he be worth believing in? In the Jewish mindset. So when Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount, and he begins by teaching humility, and mourning, and then meekness, the people seem, it seems like to them, something's totally off. This is not right. This is wrong. This is not at all what we were hoping for. We gathered to hear about our deliverance, and he's talking about humility, and mourning, and now meekness. In their minds, this man could not be their savior. No way. Because great causes are fought by the proud, not the humble. You can't win victories while mourning, and you certainly can't conquer Rome with a little dose of meekness. For the Jews, these people never really believed in Christ as the Messiah because he failed to act in a military or miracle power way against Rome. This was not their Messiah. And, and eventually, those people not only didn't believe in him, they would eventually reject him, and frankly, because he didn't fulfill their messianic expectation. He would preach the, against the very means in which they had put their hope. They would hate him, they would kill him instead of approving him because they, he did not approve their religion. He condemned it. And instead of leading them in, in, into independence from Rome, Jesus would re reject their very desire for liberation and gave them a far greater path for freedom. But they did not want that. They had already planned out in their minds, this is the way we want our freedom to happen. But Jesus comes and says, no, that's not my way. It's a way of meekness. You see, the Jews are not looking 
for the Messiah that God had told them about. For all of their expectations and presuppositions about who this Messiah would be and what his kingdom would look like, they had forgot a lot about what God had already foretold about this Messiah. They had totally disregarded parts of God's word, such as the prophecies in Isaiah, that very clearly portray the Messiah as a suffering servant as well as a conquering Lord. They could not accept the idea of descriptions like this. He had no stately form or majesty. He was despised and forsaken of men. He was oppressed and he was afflicted like a lamb that was led to slaughter. That he was cut off from the land of the living and his grave was assigned by wicked men. No, no, this was not their Messiah. This was just an ordinary man. And what they failed to recognize, recognize that the humble and self-denying Jesus was actually the Messiah that was promised to them. Because they did not recognize God's predicted suffering servant as the Messiah is why they totally missed it. This was not the kind of Messiah they wanted. They wanted freedom from all their oppression. And my friends, I don't think you and I, life today, our expectations, what we desire, is that far off actually. I don't think we're too different in our thinking today because Many today are seeking for relief from life's problems and to be freed from life's troubles, but they want to gain their freedom. How? How it suits them best. They want it now and they want it by their own terms. The true Messiah has come to give freedom on his own terms. Jesus has come to give freedom and liberate as he says it should happen. Well, what are his terms? What are the terms that provide freedom and grant this blessedness that he's talking about? We don't have to go too far back. Beatitude 1 and Beatitude 2, he says what? Be poor in spirit, humble yourself, realize you have nothing to offer, see your sin for what it is, mourn deeply for your sin, and then what? The formula then leads us to a spirit of gentleness, a spirit of meekness. This is the pathway to the kingdom of God. But for many today, this seems absurd. This seems illogical. People today would rather trust in themselves instead of subjecting themselves to a meek and gentle Savior, just like the Jewish people. They would rather believe in themselves than on the one who would rescue them based on his gracious terms. The audience that Jesus is talking to is an audience that just needed a good dose of self-denial, who needed to learn to say no to themselves and yes to the true freedom offered by Christ. But they were, the big hang-up, the big pause for them was that it was requiring a certain quality character meekness what is meekness well first of all I think we need to understand what meekness is not what meekness is not meekness you've probably heard it before meekness is not weakness 
Meekness is not weakness. It does not imply cowardice or spinelessness or timidity or willingness to have peace at any cost. Neither does it suggest someone who is indecisive or wishy-washy or kind of lacks confidence. Meekness doesn't imply a shyness or a withdrawn personality. There are people who are more easygoing than others or people who seem to be born naturally nice, right? Those people, it's kind of annoying. They're just naturally nice. Can't you be bad, like, just a little bit, right? They're just naturally nice. But friends, we cannot just reduce meekness to mere niceness. Why? Because niceness runs out eventually, right? The reason for all of this, that we can't just associate it with a certain character trait or a certain natural quality is because these are things that are part of our nature. It's a natural quality about us. Perhaps you see it in people who appear to be meek in a natural sense, but we cannot confuse this with just a laid-back personality. We must realize that meekness, as Jesus describes it, is not a natural quality. It's not a matter of a natural disposition because Christ tells us that Christians will become meek. It's something that is actually produced in us by the work of the Spirit in us. It's not something that just bubbles to the surface occasionally because you are better at it than someone else. No, this is a product of the Spirit's work in your life to make you meek. There are a lot of things that meekness is not but what then is the Spirit producing in us? What is it? What is meekness? Well, the word, the word gentle or the word meek here in our text comes from the Greek word prahos, which basically means mild or soft. It was used to describe young horses or a young colt or an animal that, has, that had a natural wild spirit about it that had to be broken first by a trainer so that it could be used for useful work, Right? For, for those of you who have experience with this, I've, I've never done this more than trying to, I don't know, house train a tiny poodle. But um, for those of you who have experience with a giant several hundred pound mammal that is wild and you break it and you try to hook it up to something to produce some kind of useful work, this is the idea here. And as a human attitude, it meant being gentle of spirit, submissive, quiet, and tender-hearted. Now, there are several things that I, from Scripture, I think we see very clearly that meekness is. It's on full display, and it's very clear that, that, that it's described in this way. The first thing is this. Meekness is strength under control. Strength under control. Proverbs 25, verse 28, tells us that a person without meekness is like a city that is broken down and without walls. It has no ability to protect itself. It is open, susceptible to all things. It has no strength because it is broken down. It is meekless. Proverbs 16 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. It's like an unbroken horse it's totally useless. It's like medicine that's too strong and will harm rather than cure. It's like a, a, a strong wind that, that is out of control and it destroys. Likewise, unbridled power also destroys and has no place in God's kingdom. 
Meekness uses its resources appropriately. It's strength under control. It knows when to stand for truth boldly and when to display grace in the face of oppression. Meekness is strength under control. Now, as I was thinking about this specific aspect of what meekness is, several men, several people came to mind, but specifically one person over and over kept coming to my mind. And my father-in-law, which maybe very few of you actually know my father-in-law in here, and you might say, okay, strength under control, your father-in-law must, I don't know, must be a scary guy. And I would say, yeah, he is. Um, he is, when I first met him, um, I had no idea what his personality was like. All I could judge him by was his outward appearance and stories that I had heard about this man, a man who was called Rocky in high school because of his boxing background and a man who um, has completely no hair, totally bald, arms about this big around and just an intimidating sight, right? When you go to ask him if you can date his daughter, you're sweating profusely and he has this deep voice that he asks you all these questions on this giant steno pad while he rocks comfortably in his chair on the front porch and you sit on this tiny little chair next to him, right? I think of my father-in-law as a great source of strength, a man of four daughters who knows what it's like to say no to a young boy. And here I'm going, this is a strong man. But that's not what I mean when I think of the meekness of my father-in-law. Because my father-in-law as strong as he might seem, is just a big teddy bear. He's one of the most gentle and kind men that I've met. But when face to face with a truth or a lie, with right or wrong, he knows how to use his strength appropriately. He knows when to show his strength and say, no, the line's here. I got to experience and sit under his preaching as a pastor several times. And I could tell when his heart would drift from warm pastor shepherding to this is wrong. You should not do this. This is what the scriptures say This is where we line up, folks. And I would see his strength used appropriately, but it was a meekness of character. It is something that he had developed over time. And and no doubt, as we walk through these characteristics, people begin to pop into your mind. People who've displayed this, this, this meekness, it's personified in their lives. But not only is meekness a strength that is under control, used appropriately, meekness... In a person, a meek person does not defend himself. A meek person does not defend himself. Meekness is the opposite of violence and revenge. For example, Hebrews 10.34 says that the meek person, and this blows my mind, accepts joyfully the seizing of his property. Why? Knowing that he is a far better and more permanent possession awaiting him in heaven. The person who is meek has died to self and he does not worry about injury to himself or about loss or insults or abuse from others. A meek person 
doesn't feel the need, the necessity to immediately defend themselves and put up a barrier to protect themselves. This is one of the most natural responses that we have in life. Right? Whenever you're attacked, whenever someone says something about you that's either true or not true, what is your first response? What do we normally do? There's an immediate building up of defenses to say, no way, not me. For those of you who are parents parents in here, you, you see this interesting dynamic between your children fairly often, right? In my house, there is a great art being perfected of tattling that... I don't know how they get to be such great tattlers, but they become really good at it. There's an equal art that matches this art of tattling, which is the art of defense. The art of, "Uh uh-uh, I did not, right? He hit me, "Uh uh-uh, did not, right? We immediately run to that natural ability of ours to say, it wasn't my fault. I, I didn't do anything. How could you say that about me? That's not who I am. You don't know me. You don't know what I'm going through. Defense. But my friends, the meek man, the meek person doesn't do this. Let that sink in for a second. Someone who is meek does not seek to defend themselves. Why? Because the meek person knows that he does not have anything worth defending. He doesn't deserve defending. Because when he's in a person who's poor in spirit and mourning over his great sinfulness, Beatitude 1 and Beatitude 2, the meek person stands humbly before God and knows he has nothing to commend himself for. There's no retaliation, no vindictiveness in his heart because he has been forgiven much. To be truly meek means we no longer protect ourselves because we see there's nothing worth defending. A meek person no longer worries about himself and what others say. We no longer are on the defensive. And can I take it another step further? Not only does a meek person abandon that that propensity to defend themselves, A meek person is not even sensitive about himself. He's not always watching out for himself or his own interests. He never pities himself. He's never feeling sorry for himself. He never talks to himself and says, Self, you're having a hard time, or how unkind these people have been to you. Or he never thinks, How wonderful I truly am. If only people gave me a chance to show all of that. My friends, this is just self-pity. It's not meekness. The man who is meek, a person who has this character quality, is totally done with this self-pity mindset. In other words, to be meek is to be finished with yourself altogether. You come to see that you have no rights at all, And that is the pathway of meekness. Puritan preacher John Bunyan summarizes this thought so perfectly. He says, in just a few short words, he says, He that is down 
need fear no fall. When we truly see ourselves for who we are, we know that no one can say anything about us that is too bad. You know that what people say, we deserve and truly more than that. In summary, frankly, a person who's truly meek is someone who is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. It's not a sensitive person, not a defensive person. Meekness is essentially a true view of yourself. It's a true view of your, excuse me, a view of yourself and then expressing itself in an attitude and conduct in response to others. It's two things. It's my attitude towards myself and it's an expression of that in my relationship to others. How I view myself and how I respond based on that view. You can see how inevitably meekness follows the first and second beatitudes. Because we're poor in spirit and we mourn our sinfulness. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, a man can never be meek unless he's poor in spirit first. A man can never be meek unless he sees himself as a vile sinner. These beatitudes must come first. So my friends, when, when we have a true view of ourselves, the clear result of seeing who we are and mourning our sin is an absence of pride. The meek person is not a proud person. There's no sense of glory in himself. There's nothing to boast about. There's nothing to stand in defense of. There's no self-pity to be had. We see ourselves for who we truly are. We mourn for that. That's meekness. Now, there are many places in Scripture where meekness is described. We could go to Moses and Abraham. Moses, who's described in Scripture as the most meek man to walk the face of the earth. But we know that by the descriptions that we see of Christ, that nowhere else do we see this virtue expressed better than in the person of Jesus. We model our meekness after his own life. Just follow along here. Think of the person of Christ. A man who self-proclaimed himself as mild, gentle, lowly. A man characterized by a quiet spirit. An absence of a desire for retaliation when so many times he could have given right back what he received and more. He is patient. He's long-suffering, especially when suffered unjustly. Listen to what Peter says in his first epistle about Christ. He says, Christ committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Very familiar passage in Philippians 2 tells us that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality, excuse me, count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to hold on to, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. My friends, the spirit of meekness, the spirit of Christ is a spirit of humility. 
And we see it in the person of Jesus most gloriously. There are a lot of things that meekness is not, but it's very clear in Scripture what meekness is. And the life of Christ shows us exactly what that is. But in verse 5 here, Jesus tells us, blessed are the meek, blessed are these people who receive this character quality and they look like this and they act like it. They are true kingdom citizens, Jesus is saying. Blessed are the meek people. And what is the result of that? What's, what's the reward for meekness? Well, as with the other Beatitudes, the general result is being blessed. Blessed, 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 over and over again. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says. It's God giving the meek his own joy and his own gladness that they are divinely happy, divinely satisfied. They are blessed beyond all measure. But more specifically here in verse 5, in this beatitude, Jesus says the gentle, the meek, inherit something very specific. The meek inherit the earth. After creating man, God made man dominion and gave him dominion over all the earth. And although it was lost and perverted after the fall, it was destroyed and corrupted The citizens of Christ's kingdom that he's talking about here in in the Sermon on the Mount are going to one day, someday, regain this inheritance. It will be a paradise regained. And on that day, God will reclaim his earthly domain and those who become his children, children will rule with him. That's the promise. It's the gentle. It's the meek. Those are the ones that Christ says you will inherit that coming time. This is to whom the promise is made. Now, most Jews thought that the great kingdom that was coming of the Messiah would belong to the strong. That was their perception. And of whom the Jews would be the strongest, of course. But the Messiah himself is saying that it belongs not to the strong, not to the mighty, but to the meek. These are the ones to whom it's promised. Now again, don't don't be too hard on the Jewish people here. right? Don't be too hard here for their deep longing and their their expectations. Remember the context. These are people steeped in, in religious tradition. They know a lot has been passed down to them. They know what the scriptures say. And they would have known the words they should have known The words coming out of Christ's mouth when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That it should have rung in their ears a very similar passage in Psalm 37, verse 11, where it's an almost direct quote that Jesus gives. He says there in Psalm, But the humble, the humble will inherit the earth. And for many generations, hundreds of years, faithful Jews had wondered why the wicked and godless seem to prosper and the righteous and the godly seem to suffer. That's what Psalm 37 is about. It's a cry to the Lord that says, I see the wicked prosper. They mock your name. The righteous that are very few seem to be gaining nothing. There's nothing happening for us, Lord. And yet over here is just a, a way of prosperity and growth 
and victory and nothing over here, Lord. And there in the middle in verse 11, it says, the humble will inherit the earth. But the Lord also reassures David, along with the promise of blessing coming, that you will inherit the earth. Listen to what verse 10 says in Psalm 37. The Lord says, yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. God is saying that wicked men and their time for judgment is coming. As well as the righteous person's time of blessing. Now the Jews thought that they knew when this promise would happen and how it would happen. And that's why they're hearing the words of Jesus and it makes no sense to them. Because they wanted freedom how they wanted it. We want our freedom how we want it without Christ. Jesus is saying, no, my kingdom belongs to the meek. God and his perfect timing, his perfect judgment will be just. Therefore, for us today, what is our responsibility? Well, our responsibility is to trust the Lord and obey his will. The settling of accounts, whether for the unjust or for the godly, the settling of accounts is in his hands and it will be accomplished exactly in the right time and the right way. And while we wait, God's children, we walk by faith, we live by faith, and by the hope based on the certain promise that Jesus expressed, you will inherit the earth. It may not seem like it right now. It might be as distant and as oppressive, and you might not see, it might not near, be anywhere in your near future. But the promise is true. You will rule with Christ. Those who are meek will inherit the earth. What a, what a joyous promise. What a joyous promise you and I, those of us in Christ, we eagerly await. Our time's up, but I'd like to very quickly, two things, how to become meek. What does it look like to become meek? First, we must realize that a gentle and meek spirit is a gift. Who is it a gift from? Well, it's a gift from the Spirit of God. You and I will never make ourselves meek. We'll never be able to make ourselves a meek person. It's not in our nature. It just can't be done. Monks have tried it for decades, and yet they are not meek. They just go away, shave their heads, and isolate themselves. There's nothing truly meek about them. This, my friends, is a work of grace. It only comes by grace. Not, no one, but the Spirit of God can truly humble us. This is the character that is produced in us by the working of the Spirit. We cast ourselves on the Lord. We ask Him humbly for grace. And we ask confidently knowing that this is His will. He desires that you and I would become meek citizens as we grow in grace. Second, we need to pay close attention to the progression of thought in the Beatitudes. I've mentioned it a couple times. But here Christ has provided for us a three-step, a, a, a three-ladder step to achieve meekness. 
The initial step is the blessing that is promised to those who are poor in spirit. Those who know themselves, they're broken. They realize they fall short of God. They need God. And you add to that the second beatitude of mourning is spiritual poverty, a spiritual brokenness that naturally leads to a lament and a mourning for sin in us and all around us. And therefore, a true poverty of spirit and a spiritual mourning, when those are present, they make way for the virtue of meekness. As we grow in grace and we continually see ourselves for who we are and we mourn our sin, this produces in us, by God's Spirit, a spirit of meekness by His grace. My friends, there are wonderful promised blessings to us. We will inherit the earth as kingdom citizens, but it is promised to those who adorn meekness by the Spirit of God. May God, by His grace, instill in us, even this week, a greater sense of meekness as we grow in grace. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. God, so grateful that you've left a very clear pathway for what a kingdom citizen looks like. I pray for grace for each one of us individually, for our families, for our community, that we would be meek people. We would know how to walk as meek citizens of the kingdom of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name.